So as we begin reading in Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 27, it says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered a whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Then the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, and they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Well, several years ago, I was on a jury duty, and in that jury duty, it was a a murder trial, and it lasted for a couple of weeks. And at the end of that couple of weeks, the guy who was the bailiff and also one of the sheriffs down in the area where the crime had been committed came in to the jury and said, now that the hearing is all over and you've rendered your decision, now we're free to talk about it. He couldn't ever talk to us about it before. So if you have any questions, you're welcome. And so we asked a few questions. And with the answering of our few questions that we had that had kind of plagued our minds all the way through the trial, we realized that the trial would have actually been over much quicker if we'd have been able to have access to some more of the information. But one of the things that really stood out in my mind as we went through that trial was the great lengths that the court went to to give the person who is being accused 
every opportunity to maintain their innocence. They go to great pains and great lengths and great expense to make sure that that person on trial has the opportunity to adjust in a fair trial. Well, exactly the opposite of that is the court proceedings that we began to look at last week with Jesus. We saw that the court proceedings that Jesus went to all happened at night. And whereas they were, that was against the law, they happened someplace other than the temple, which also was against the law. And it so happened that by the time he got to the end of the court proceedings, the judge himself had pronounced Jesus innocent three times and then turned around and sent him to be crucified. And so we see the biggest sham in history of court that happened and the extent at which these people would go through to put this person to death who was so clearly innocent. Well, that was no surprise for Jesus. It was to this hour that he had come. In fact, he would predicted it at least three times coming up to this point. We've seen three of them in the book of Matthew as we've studied through. When we got to chapter 16, which is the first place that the disciples finally confessed that Jesus was the Christ, he begins in Matthew chapter 16. In verse 21, he says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. When we got to chapter 17, we find him again warning his disciples of the same things. He says, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When we get to Matthew chapter 20, Jesus gives even more detail. And he says in verses 17 through 19, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on that third day. And so here Jesus actually just lays out exactly what's going to happen. He says, we're going up to Jerusalem. I'm going to be delivered to the chief priest. And that's what he's been doing all night. They've taken him before Annas and Caiaphas, the, the previous high priest, the current high priest. and They've been having these court proceedings, in quotes we'll put that. And they will determine that he is guilty of blasphemy. But they can't put him to death. And so they've got to hand him over to the Gentiles. So he's been handed over to the chief priests. Now he's being handed over to the Gentiles. And he says, they're going to mock me, flog me, and crucify me. And you couldn't uh, say it any more accurately than what Jesus predicted at that time. He knew exactly what was going to happen to it. And yet he did it. And he did it for us. And that's what we want to consider this morning as we look at it plain and simple. We want to look at the cross. And we want to get a glimpse of it. And we want to see what, what happened. It's, it's, it's not a pleasant thing to see or to focus on unless you constantly keep in the back of your mind that this is the extent that he was willing to go through for you, to pay for your sins on that cross to have, so that you could have an eternal life with him, a bright hope and a future. He would go through all of this for you. That makes it better. Well, as, as we look through this passage. There are things that Jesus suffered and endured that are not fun to think about, that are not pleasant. But at the same time, it's important for us to know that he did. And it's important for us to recognize the extent that he was willing to go through to pay for our sins upon that cross. Uh, other parts of it are more encouraging as we think about the accomplishments and what, he's, what he did through the cross. Now that's the part that's great. That's why, that's why crosses are wore as necklaces and earrings and, and jewelry today. It's because there is, a, there is a positive aspect to it. There is something to celebrate in this. There is something worth using it as decoration. And it's because of the accomplishment that it made in our lives. Well, we're going to consider all these kinds of things here as we unfold this before us this morning. 
as we look at four different aspects of the cross as we go through Matthew's account of it. The first aspect that we see involved here is mockery. Jesus said that I'm going to go, they're going to hand me over to the chief priests and he's going to hand me over to the Gentiles and I'm going to be mocked. That was the first thing that he listed and it's the first thing that they did and they did it throughout. The first place that we really see him being mocked is with the soldiers. They take him and they gathered the whole battalion, it says, before him. Now that's, this is overkill. This is amazing. A battalion was 600 soldiers. I don't know about you, but I've often pictured it that when Jesus is being mocked by the soldiers, that there's maybe, you know, five or ten of them there. How many do you need to guard a guy that you're whipping? There's 600 of these people there. They're making quite a spectacle out of this. So before a crowd of 600, which you think of it in our church here this morning, what do we got? 50, 60 people maybe. So we're going to multiply that by 10, this crowd that Jesus is going to be before. And what are they going to do as he's before this crowd? They're going to strip him. Talk about making somebody feel vulnerable, unprotected right off the bat. They're going to put a robe on him that they're mocking, saying, that, you know, try and treat him like a king. They take a, make a crown, but they make the crown out of the crown of thorns, and they're going to place that on his head. They're going to take a stick. Oh, here, give him this rod. Give him this stick. Why? Because that's going to be the king's scepter. They're dressing him up. They're making fun. They're ridiculing. They're belittling. Now, you know, I dare say that probably all of us, everybody in here has experienced mockery to some level or, or another, right? I mean, has anybody ever not been been made fun of or ridiculed and I don't mean I don't I don't mean making fun there is a making fun that really is making fun you know I have a lot of idiosyncrasies in my life and I I don't care if you laugh at them I'll laugh at them with you that that can be funny but you know what when the party that's the target is not having fun it's not making fun anymore then it's mockery then it's ridicule and that's what Jesus was going through he was not entertained but he's being mocked but then it gets a, a bit harder when you're being mocked and you haven't done anything to deserve it. You haven't done anything stupid. You haven't done anything wrong. And, but you're being mocked anyway, just for who you are. That's more hurtful. Now imagine taking this kind of mockery and being the person that Jesus was. He's the, he's the creator of the universe. He's the righteous son of God, holy, perfect, unblemished, if Anybody does not deserve mocking in the whole world. This is the person. I don't know how he could stay there and take it, especially when he had the opportunity to not take it. He could have at any time called to the Father and had those angels come, wipe out this whole world of people that's ready to hang him on the cross and be done with it. But he wouldn't. He would endure that mocking. So he, he starts off with the soldiers. They dress him up like a king. They're mocking him. They put a blindfold on him. They hit him in the face and say, hey, if you're the son of God, then surely you know who hit you. Who was it that hit you? They will take the stick and drive those crown of thorns, which the thorns in, in that area the, that they're talking about grow. The, the, the spikes on them are like three inches long and sharp. And they will whack him on the head on top of that crown, driving that down into his brow. You're the king. Save yourself. And their mockery is so foolish. Even from there, after they get done mocking him and they, they take the, the robe back off and they put his clothes back on him and they take him out and they beat him and then take him to be crucified, put the cross on him and have him carry it to be crucified. And by that time, he's beaten so tired that he can't even carry it all himself, so they have to get somebody else to help him carry it. Even along the way, as this person is already looking very defeated, the people along the way, along the road, are spitting at him. They're mocking him. They're saying, you who would tear down the temple in three days and then rebuild it, save yourself. And of course, they don't expect him to save himself. They're making a point. But you know what the ironic thing is? He was doing exactly that. He was tearing down the temple and rebuilding it in three days. Because remember, it says it wasn't until later that the disciples realized. But when Jesus said, tear down this temple, he was talking about the temple of his body. 
So he was accomplishing exactly the thing that they mentioned. And not only that, but then notice also in verse, uh, I think it's in verse 42. Verse 42, it says, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Now think about that statement. These religious leaders actually condemn themselves in their statement because they start off with just a recognition of the facts. They say he, he saved others. The word saved does not always mean in a spiritual sense. In fact, the word that's translated saved right there is often translated in the New Testament as healed or made whole. Like when somebody comes with an illness to be healed by Christ. And it says that He heals them or makes them whole. It's the same word that's translated saved. These people are saying, look, He saved others. Think about the condemnation that's within that statement right there. The religious leaders just acknowledged that the person that they have worked so tirelessly to get hung up on that cross is somebody that, what was he doing? He was going about doing good for other people. He was going about healing people. He was making blind people see and lame people walk and deaf people hear. He even raised the dead on a few occasions. And he was healing sicknesses and he was healing leprosy and, and he was feeding five, well over 5,000. That just counted the men. So probably more like 15,000 or better people with one boy's lunch. So he was feeding the hungry. And that's the kind of person that you worked so hard to put, your, put on the cross. You should be very proud. So there was condemnation. And as they're trying to mock Christ, they point to their own foolishness. I would have to confess that that is some of my experience. I've found that from time to time when I think that something looks ridiculous and I make fun of it, I often find out that I don't know all the information and the people that I make fun of aren't nearly as ridiculous as I thought they were. But as you get to know the workings of something more in depth, that all of a sudden the wisdom of their decisions starts to stand out a little bit better. And you know what? That's, that's often when we get in a place where we're mocking somebody or something or an institution, we probably don't always have all the facts. That's exactly what's going on with them. They're mocking Jesus and they're mocking him about doing what? Healing people. They acknowledge right in there that he's the one going about doing good. But then notice what it says. It says he saves others. He can't save himself. Now think about this. That statement is absolutely true, but not in the way that they mean it. They're saying he does not have the ability to save himself, which is absolutely not true. But the statement itself, if you just take it word for word, is absolutely true. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Because the point is this. If Jesus saves himself, he does not save everyone else. That's the whole point. He has to go to that cross. That's how he delivers us. He delivers us by taking our penalty, our punishment upon himself. And that provides for our salvation because that satisfies the justice of God. It satisfies the wrath of God against sin. And unless Jesus takes that upon himself, then we're left to pay it. And so we spend an eternity away from this eternal God that we've sinned against. And so if Jesus saves himself, he cannot save others. He has to go through this. He has to endure this cross in order to accomplish our salvation. So the first thing that we see in the cross is we see, we see mockery that Jesus would go through. The soldiers would make fun of him. The people along the roadside would make fun of him. The religious leaders would make fun of him. They would, they would mock him from the time that they start to whip him from the, till the time that he draws his last breath on the cross. They would mock him and he would endure it. But not only is there mockery, we also see a tremendous brutality that is involved here. The cross is probably the most excruciating way to die in the history of the world. The Romans didn't invent it. It was actually invented in Persia. In Persia, there was a worship of a false god that declared the earth to be very sacred. And so if somebody was to put to be put to death for a crime, then they did not deserve to be on the earth. So they crucified them, hanging them up off of the earth, suspending them above the earth, so that they were not contaminating the earth by the presence of their execution. 
from Persia. It went on from there. The Greeks adopted it, but the Romans were the ones that really made it popular. They really kind of took to it. And so most of the time when people think of crucifixion, you think of Rome. Rome used it greatly. In fact, it's estimated that by the time of Christ, they had probably executed, by way of the cross, over 30,000 people. It was most commonly used for things like the insurrection, when people would rise up against Rome and try to rebel. This was their way of putting you in place. It was designed to take you and humiliate you and say, look at this person who dared defy Rome. This is what happens to you when you rebel against us. And they parade you down Main Street with being mocked all along the way. And they hang you on the cross on the hill. That uh, the, the hill itself looks kind of like the shape of the skull. That's why Golgotha is called the place of the skull. Calvary actually is a word that also means a skull. They mock you. They whip you. They parade you through town in that condition. And they hang you on a cross on the other end of town on the hill for all to see. And it's a very public event. Rome took pride in this. It was, it was part of their getting glory over whatever rose up against them. They were brutal. Jesus said, I'll be mocked and I'll be flogged. They would suspend you by your arms so your back muscles are hanging tight and they would whip you with a whip that was called a cat of nine tails. It had nine strands of leather that stuck out the other end of it and had had a piece of sharp rock and bone hooked to the ends of those straps and they would tear apart your back in a very gruesome way, even at times exposing and damaging organs. The Jews had a rule. The Jewish people, if they whipped you, they whipped you what was called the 40 minus 1. They weren't allowed to whip you more than 40 times. Can you imagine that? 40 times. But they weren't allowed to whip you more than that, so what they'd always do is they'd take one off just in case they miscounted. So they'd count up to 39, whip you 39 times, because they don't want to do 41 because then they're in trouble. So just in case we miscounted, we'll deduct one so they'd whip you 39 times. Rome had no such rule. They like to bring you right up to the point of where you'll finally pass out from the anguish and the pain and the stress and everything that you're going in, and then stop. They like to have you in about as much misery as they can get you in without you dying or passing out and then leave you there and keep you in that kind of a state for about as long as they can. You know, we were reading the passage about them offering him this, this mixture. It was usually myrrh, uh, maybe mixed with some wine. It's offered to him earlier and then offered to him again later on the cross. And the first time he, he, he denies it, the second time he drinks it. What that was, was myrrh was a narcotic, which will kind of stupefy you, it'll kind of numb you a little bit, kind of deaden the pain a little. As soon as Jesus realizes what it was, he doesn't want it. He rejects it, and the reason is because he is there to feel the pain. He's there to experience the anguish, to suffer on our behalf. And so he's not going to do anything that's going to diminish that suffering at this point. Not until he's paid the full price. Well, at that point you think, whoa, well, maybe Rome has a little bit of compassion when they see him get to this point, they give him something that will kill the pain. That's not why they gave him that. From secular writings that we have in Roman history, apparently what Rome would often do is they give you a little bit of that. That means it's right about the time where they're going to nail you to the cross. And so they give, would give you a little taste of that to kind of settle you down so that you're not hard to wrestle while you're there nailing your feet and your hands. It wasn't to relieve your agony. It was so you're not kicking around while they're trying to nail you down. And so even that was not an, an, an act of, of mercy. You know, the Bible says in the predictions about him uh, back in the book of Isaiah, it says that he would be to the point where you could not even recognize him as a man. That he was so whipped and so disfigured from everything that he went through. And he would endure all, all that for us. This one, Dr. Truman Davis, he wrote back in, in 1965, 
back in Arizona medicine. He did a study on what Christ would have been experiencing in his physical body from a medicinal, from a doctor's standpoint. What would he have been going through with the passion when he's going uh, suffering on the cross? And this is what he wrote. He says, at this point, another phenomenon occurs. As the arms fatigue, so this is talking about after he's already nailed up on the cross. It says, as the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, nodding them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward. Hanging by his arms, the pectoral muscles are paralyzed and the intercostal muscles are unable to act. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but it cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one short breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Spasmodically, he's able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in the life-giving oxygen. Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins, a deep crushing pain in the chest as the pericardium fills up with serum and begins to compress the heart. It is now almost over. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air. I always, in the past, used to think about just the beating that he went through and the the agony being hanging on the cross to die. I didn't even think about all the things that would be going on within your body with your muscles cramping and, and things like that to where you can't push yourself up. If you don't push yourself up, you can't breathe. There's just so much agony going on. And Rome took a real pleasure in this for some sick reason. But you know what? The real point of this is that is exactly what Jesus needed to experience to bear our sins in his own body on that tree. He was, he was bearing the wrath of God. A lot of people look at Christ and think, well, Christ is a good teacher, a great example. That's not what he was. He's a savior. He's a savior. He's a redeemer. He came to pay this price so that we could be delivered. And then lastly, as we look at the things that he suffered, this one comes directly from the Father because Jesus will cry out. He says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So with Jesus hanging there on that cross, going through all this excruciating pain, God the Father turns his back on God the Son. And for the first time in history, they're separate. How can that be? These two that are one are somehow separate. The father would turn his back on the son because that's part of the penalty. What happened when Adam and Eve ate the fruit in the garden? They got kicked out of the garden. They got kicked out of the presence of God. Sin brings death and spiritual death is a separation from God. Jesus had to undergo that. He took even that, even that separation from God, the father, upon himself as he bore our sins on that cross. And then he would make one more statement. He would breathe his last and he would die. It's all over. Abandonment. You know, that's another thing that we're often familiar with in our cursed world. Is there anybody here that hasn't had a, a friend that's turned the back on him at one time? A, a parent, a child, a spouse, a sibling? Haven't felt some kind of abandonment being turned away from by somebody that was important to you at one time or another? Most commentators would say that they think that this is the most uh, agonizing part of the experience for Christ. Going through all the physical pain, as grievous as that was, as horrible as that was, is one thing, but to finally be separated from his father, to have his father turn his back on him was worse than all of it, and I would tend to think that that's probably true. 
Jesus would hang up there on that cross and pay for our sins and he would do it alone. But the last aspect, the last aspect, the one I like to focus on the most, is the accomplishment. What did it accomplish? Because this is what makes the the cross beautiful. If If it isn't for this, the cross is ugly. You know, and, and for us to wear a cross around our around our neck on a necklace isn't any any more glorious than wearing a little electric chair or a noose or anything else around your neck. It'd just be morbid. But this is what what makes cross into jewelry is the accomplishment of the cross. And as we look at that accomplishment, we see two different things that it accomplished right here in this passage. The first one's acceptance, because it says when Jesus hung on that cross, when he breathed his last, that the curtain was torn in two. The curtain that it's talking about is the curtain that was used as a door to go into the Holy of Holies, which symbolizes the presence of God. Now, all down through the ages, that door is always shut. Once a year, the high priest, only the high priest can go in there, only with the proper sacrifice can he go in, and he's in there for a limited amount of time while he offers a sacrifice, and then he leaves, and he's not even allowed back in for the next year. And so the whole point of that curtain is that it's shut, that access to God is not available We as sinners have no access to God. But when Jesus dies on that cross, it says the the curtain is rent in two. It's not just slid to the side. It's destroyed. It's rent in two. And it's, it's open. It's signifying that access to God is now available. Acceptance before God is now available. Why? Because the punishment of our crimes has been met. Justice has been accomplished. And so now we have acceptance before God the Father. And then we also see that we have life. We have life. There's just a little taste of it. Jesus raises people from the dead. There's an earthquake and the rocks shake and split and the graves are open and some of the saints of old walk out of the graves and hang out in Jerusalem for a while. And that, i got to believe that this has a real part of why the church in a very short amount of time is going to start growing by the thousands. Why is it going to start growing by the thousands? Because the people know this is true. Because you saw these people that were dead walking around Jerusalem. And then we saw Jesus too. Jesus, at the moment of His death, God brings to life these old people that were in the grave. Throughout the Bible, it makes no bones about it. And the New Testament emphasizes this over and over and over, that Christ's death was a substitution for our death so that we can have eternal life. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, it says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 says, In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The word propitiation means like, a, like paying a ransom or a price, an offering that has the idea that this offering is what is required to remove us from underneath wrath. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Probably the best picture of, of what we're talking about right here happened right before this in the passage that we have already looked at. Remember when Jesus is on trial and Pilate three times says, I don't find any reason to kill Him. He's innocent. But He says, I'll release to you one person that's on death row. Who do you want me to release? He's thinking, of course, they're going to pick Christ. He's innocent as can be. He's trying to get out of it. He says, you want me to release him or do you want me to release Barabbas? Barabbas, if you read through the Bible, it refers to him in Matthew as a notorious criminal. It says in in other passages that he is a robber, a murderer, and an insurrectionist. And so who wants a murderer back in the neighborhood? Who wants a thief back in the neighborhood? And so he says, who do you want? Do you want me to release 
the king of the Jews or the murderer? And they said, release the murderer. He says, well, then what do I do with Christ? Crucify him. And you see this trade that takes place? The one that is completely guilty. In fact, I think it's his cross that Jesus died on. Is, I think those other two robbers, the, the word translated robbers, is the same one that refers to him dealing with being a, an insurrectionist. And so I think it's uh, Barabbas' cross that was assembled for Barabbas that Jesus would go and die on, his cross. And Barabbas goes free. There's a picture for you right there. Here's a person that's completely guilty, a horrid criminal, and he goes scot-free. And Jesus goes and gets on his cross and dies in the agony that was intended for that guy. That's the story. Barabbas is just a picture of what he was doing for all of us. He was taking the guilt of all of us. We're all guilty before God. He was taking the guilt and the sins of all of us and bearing them in his own body on that cross so that we could be redeemed. So that we could be free. That's what makes the cross old, rugged, and bloodstained as it is. Beautiful.